beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Girth. Welcome to the Synexus Conference Manager. Please enter your conference ID followed by the pound key. At the tone, please record your name. When you're finished, press the pound key. Sammy Lynn. This conference may be recorded. Joining conference. While I'm waiting for Dave O'Connor to get on the line, I'll fill you in on who he is. Dave O'Connor is not a household name, but trust me, he impacts your household. As an executive producer, he's given us David Blaney, Realer Magic, Tony Robbins, I Am Not Your Guru. That was a surreal documentary. You need to see that. I don't even know how to explain that one. Mars, it's, I think it's on the National Geographic channel with Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, the, the dude with the hair. And for ESPN 30 for 30s, 30 for 30s, yo, he executive produced two of them. Doc and Daryl, a 2016 baseball story. And you don't know Bo, the legend of Bo Jackson. Phenomenal 30 for 30. That's your homework if you haven't seen it. And he's also executive produced one of Netflix's earliest docs, Keith Richards Under the Influence, which was directed by Morgan Neville, the director who won an Oscar for 20 Feet from Stardom and one of Dave's partners on Abstract, The Art of Design, the Netflix docuseries on, like, design. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. The second episode features Tinker Hatfield and Michael Jordan. It's launch day for Abstract, The Art of Design, so it's a fantastic opportunity talk to Dave O'Connor. Has joined. Hello. Hey, Dave, this is Sammy. What's up, Sammy? How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks again for taking some time to do this. Absolutely, man. It's like to talk to you, and thanks for uh, shooting that note over. Uh, welcome. I want to uh, say happy launch day to you. Uh, Abstract is now out on Netflix, and uh, that must be very exciting. Do you have any rituals or like celebrations when a project is finally on the air? Yeah, I think it's it's funny. The uh, thank you first of all for for that. Uh, it launched globally at midnight Pacific time U.S. So that for me was three o'clock in the morning. You're based in New York. Uh, yeah, so it's which is a few hours. I'm an early riser, but not not quite that early. So <laughs> a few hours before I normally wake up. But I did uh, first thing this morning when my when my children got out of bed. Uh, sat them down and instead of the normal uh, Spongebob or, or something like that in the morning they, they got to, s to see Daddy's uh, daddy show on Netflix which was pretty cool way to go yeah so that was that was a lot of fun and uh, what's their review thumbs up yeah I think they, they were happy to see uh, what I told them was my name on the credits mm -hmm. so uh, my, my daughter can recognize my last name my son's too young he was just taking my word for it and uh, he's a big car fanatic so I, I played the beginning of the Ralph episode, which uh, seemed to excite him. So that was good. Uh, and then once I got into the talking, they were ready to move on with their days and <laughs> get them to the bus stop and all that. So that was my, uh, that was my intro to, to the series this morning, which is about as good as it gets, really. So I'll make sure then I add a note that it's a critically acclaimed uh, Netflix series then. You've got some good reviews already. We got, some, we got, a, we got at least one thumb up this morning from... Uh, from a three-year-old, so that's that's all that's all you can ask for as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's pretty good. You're well on your way there. Yeah, exactly. How does um, the Netflix experience differ from traditional TV channels, right? Because normally with regular, quote-unquote, regular TV, you have like 
lead in commercials or like a lead in show, uh, you have overnight ratings, all those kind of things. What are the kind of cues or metrics that kind of determine the success for a Netflix TV show other than a thumbs up from a three-year-old? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the one of the fundamental differences is that you're not locked into uh, act lengths or overall show durations. And you're trying to, uh, you know, essentially make one-hour documentaries that are about the length of a one-hour television show for no other reason than that's just a, uh, a thing that people are used to uh, watching and understanding. So uh, I think for an audience member to see a show that's about 45 minutes long in its totality, it feels, it just feels right. And, uh, you know, when you're working with cable or network television, those, those minutes are, are pretty uh, rigid. So you might have to hit 4430 on one network or 46 flat on another network. And you're crafting the content, obviously, for quality and to make it as good as possible. But you have these other things that you're constantly dealing with where, you know, oh, I have to, I want to lose that shot. Well, that shot is three seconds long, and now we have to figure out a way to extend something else or tweak the music to fit. So the, the fundamental freedom of the, of the format here is that you have the ability to make these minor expansions and contractions purely on a qualitative basis rather than on some sort of, uh, you know, relatively arbitrary measure of, of time. And, you know, I think for our show, they're all roughly the same length. But to be honest, I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head the different durations of each episode uh, because they just kind of ended up being the right length for them. Yeah, because as the executive producer, you're basically eHarmony, and your job is to, like, match up like a project with like a platform or TV channel like you have Mars on National Geographic uh, the Bulgar documentary was on C was with CNN films and uh, abstract is on Netflix is it what comes first I guess is it the idea or the channel or how do you eHarmony those and bring those two together I've, I've, I've genuinely never thought of it that way but that's actually pretty pretty damn accurate um, <laughs> usually we you know I think everybody does it a little differently uh, at Radical Media, where, where I work, uh, my partners and I uh, spend a lot of time and energy working with various networks and studios, uh, both domestically here in the States and also abroad, to figure out what it is they're looking for in general uh, and the types of programming they want to do, not necessarily we want uh, you know, our version of this show. It's more just sort of, you know, as a network, what's your positioning? What are you, what's the audience you're trying to reach? Uh, how are you trying to reach that audience? What are you trying to communicate to them? And we sort of constantly on an ongoing basis do that as part of our, just part of our network relationships. And the ideas are almost a separate track and we are, uh, you know, I think Radical has a pretty solid reputation in the industry for being uh, great idea generators. And uh, my partners here, uh, Dave Cyrilnik, Justin Wilkes, John Kamen, we all spend a lot of time thinking about ideas, reading books, articles, seeing movies, TV shows, uh, talking to friends in the industry, other creatives, directors, and producers, and just kind of constantly looking at the world to see what feels like uh, 
what feels like a place where we can mine stories and tell the type of stories we want to tell. And then, yeah, it does become a bit of a bit of a game of who is this idea right for? And out of our out of our network friends and all the information we've gleaned from them, who are the two or three places that that might be interested in something like this? And for each idea, that becomes part of the game. And as these networks define their identities more and more uh, distinct distinctively the number of places that an idea could work without, signif without significant tweaks or changes uh, kind of diminished. So, you know, f 10 years ago, you would have an idea like Mars, you would take it to every single network in the, in the world, and, you know, one yeah, or hope two for the best. might be interested. But nowadays, you kind of know going in, all right, there's a handful of places who could be potential buyers for an idea like this. And we don't have to spend as much time crafting a, a broad, big, uh, you know, idea and tweaking it mildly for each different room we go into. It's like, well, this is the idea, this is the execution, this is the team, and it's either going to be right for you or it's not. So the series, of course, focuses on different designers in different disciplines. Um, you mentioned, like, car design, uh, this graphic design, um, shoe design, all these kind of different things. What was uh, the pitch to all the designers? Like, why did, like, Tinker Hatfield or Paula Shearer say yes? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a really good question, and one I'll probably be asking myself and them for years after this. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, w you know, regardless of who somebody is, whenever you're approaching a, uh, a documentary subject, where somebody is going to reveal secrets, uh, and I don't mean necessarily trade secrets, although that certainly was an issue in this one, but just things about themselves, their personal life, their work, uh, the inner workings of their mind. You know, that's, a, that's an enormous amount of responsibility that we take on as filmmakers, and I think we have a, we take it very seriously. So part of what we do is talk a lot with the subjects uh, ahead of time, and make sure they f understand the full scope of what it is we're asking them to participate in, um, make sure they understand exactly what it is we want to do and get ideas from them about how it should, how it should go. Um, spend a lot of time just getting to know them uh, on a personal level and building up a mutual trust that, you know, they're going to let us into things that we, uh, that nobody else has ever seen or, or been exposed to. So we have to build that trust with them and they have to build that, that trust with us as well. Uh, specifically as related to Tinker, you know, uh, Radical has a long-standing relationship with Nike yeah. um, and has done many, many commercials with uh, Wyden Kennedy that Nike's one of Nike's advertising agencies and, uh, and Nike dating back 25 years. And those relationships run run deep and uh, were instrumental a few years back in helping us uh, helping us convince Bo Jackson to work with us on this ESPN 30 for 30 we did uh, called You Don't Know Bo and it, in the process of making that film um, Tinker Hatfield was the designer of the original Bo Jackson sneaker and we interviewed him on Nike's campus in Portland, Oregon and got to know him a little bit, and he was just a really interesting guy, really fun, had so many ideas, like 
just whipped out notebooks full of early concept drawings that he did for the shoes, which ended up being one of my favorite, you know, 30-second parts of that, that movie. And it's always just kind of been in my mind that, you know, Tinker would be an amazing subject for something at some point. And, and uh, you know, when we got into actually making this series, there is there was nothing that we could do that would stop me from trying to get Tinker to be a part of it. And Thank you for uh, that. We, we really worked hard with them to, you know, make sure that we could tell an honest story and a truthful story, that we would see our way into the Nike process, that we would be able to, you know, experience things that they had never filmed before, but also that they would have that, this built-in trust with us that, you know, was important for us to... Uh, that was important for us to live up to. Uh, so, so with Tinker, it was very much a series of relationships that cultivated over many years that, that enabled us to get the end with him. Paula really was, was Scott Dadich, uh, one of the creators of the show and executive producer, who has known Paula for, for a few years and, and have a, has a very good personal relationship with her. And he, uh, he really brokered that relationship and made sure that she felt comfortable. And of course, as we got into it a little bit more, there were all sorts of uh, cross-pollinations of people knowing people, and um, which, which turned out to be a common theme throughout the series. There's all these strange little connective tissue between the individuals involved in the series, both on the production side, but also our subjects, which, are, which was kind of fun to, to see as we went through it. It's funny you bring up the um, the Bow documentary in Tinker Hatfield, because at the beginning of the documentary, the director uh, can you help me with his last name? Michael Bonfiglio. Mike Bonfiglio, yeah. Okay, the director Michael he had this quote about how this documentary was trying to explore uh, the myths and he how myths and heroes are created, and this is in a sense kind of what you were doing not just with the abstract but kind of like it seems to be something consistent throughout your work, like you uh, you have a Tony Robbins documentary. Keith Richard documentary, the astronauts in the Mars specials, like you have a lot of cool heroes with a lot of myths, and is that kind of is that a theme or is that just something kind of like a coincidence? Well, I think the 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 theme is really um, you know going back to the fundamentals of what makes a great story and what makes a great character, and I think there is a a commonality in a lot of these stories that you know they can't just be interesting people they can't just be uh, they can't just be um, people dealing with a thing that's that's very common but it's not it's not enough so you have to be interesting people you have to be interesting people you know who have confronted something and you know you just follow basic storytelling rules um, and I think in documentary it's especially for people that are new to it, it's easy to uh, fall in love with the charisma of a person or the, uh, the basic framework with which they view the world. And you have to get beyond that stuff. And, and I think when successful documentaries, uh, whether they're television series or, or films, uh, work, you, you have to break through those those hindrances and just say, you know, if this were scripted, uh, it would work too. It's got to be just just really good. And, and it, to me, and I think to, to Radical and certainly to Morgan Neville and, and Scott Dadich, it's, 
it always comes back to who are these characters, who are, what, what is their story? Um, and I think Mike Bonfiglio, who's, who's a great filmmaker, uh, he nailed it at the top of that at the top of that film. And I think his framework for how we dealt with Bo in in that film was um, was pretty much the the only way to break free from some of those biographical tropes and get into the deeper meaning of why this why this athlete resonated so deeply with so many people. So we, we definitely tried to do a similar thing with each of these designers, uh, pairing them with directors who could unlock their true, deeper meaning and find something about their character and their story that was bigger than just um, impactful design. How did you work with the directors then? As you said, you kind of matched up the, the directors with the designers. Because Scott uh, Dadich had a cool thing. He said he, they didn't want you didn't want to make like a moving version of a coffee table book. So how did you kind of uh, guide the directors, or was there any? Because there's each of them, each of the episodes has a different beginning, a different theme song, all those kind of things. Is there any sort of commonalities or c- consistencies across each episode? Yeah, I think you know we we spent a lot of time <coughs> trying to make this series and and just kind of gut checking ourselves throughout to saying you know we can't make another pretty boring thing like it's really easy to make beautiful stuff about design if you focus on the objects you focus on the illustrations the animations you know it does a lot of the beautiful stuff for you without doing anything else and you know so we felt like okay great we have we have a very attractive set of subjects to to go through from a visual standpoint we have this sort of aesthetic playground to, to, to be living in, but we we can't be boring, and that we can't be expected. So as the executive producers of the show, we did spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, who's the right person to bring, who's the right director or the right filmmaker who can take our basic framework for the storytelling of the series um, and apply that with the spirit of the person whose whose story we're trying to tell. And once we found those matches, we, you know, to go back to your eHarmony example, we, we played that level of matchmaker, and then we just sort of guided the directors through the process. Um, and, you know, for us, it was always just about making informed decisions about what the, what the real story is, trying to find fun and interesting visual ways to get us into and out of scenes, and then relying on some commonalities that we that we crafted to help it feel less like a you know an anthology of individual documentaries told by different filmmakers, but rather a series of films that were unified by certain things. So for for us, that really came down to uh, the graphics and illustrations that we put in there, the some of the rules we used for the composition of shots. Um, some of the choices we made about lensing and camera equipment, uh, the continuity of the production team who worked across every episode. And um, even though the music is vastly different in each episode, it was all composed by Mark Mothersbaugh, who's you know an amazing composer and has a, has a really playful ear. So he was able to kind of adjust genres based on the tone and vibe of each show, but it still still all comes from the same creative space. 
um, I wanted to just draw another analogy, which is like from ESPN. Like at your time at ESPN, um, sports is always based on the idea of legacy, right? Where does Jordan fit in? Where does Bo Jackson fit in? Uh, who's the greatest? Who's the worst? All those kind of things. Legacy. So did your time at ESPN kind of shape uh, how you view legacy, especially on a project like this? Because going again to Tinker Hatfield, he's, he's a giant. He's like the Jordan <laughs> of like shoe design. Yeah. Well, I like to think my, uh, my appreciation and, and respect for legacy was what helped me get to ESPN in the first place. I, I, I think you, uh, yeah, I was definitely a sports fanatic growing up and a person who loved movies and film and television series and all sorts of stuff like that as well. So I had a, a healthy respect for legacy from, uh, from the time I was relatively young and, and definitely that's something that ESPN valued uh, then and still does today. Uh, so I think those two things are, are definitely interconnected and without a doubt part of the part of the framework for what made somebody a uh, a candidate to be a part of this series because there's you know hundreds if not thousands of worthy designers out there in all sorts of different fields who do amazing transformative work that we see around us every day. Uh, you can walk through Paula Scher's office at Pentagram and see ten other amazing, groundbreaking, world-renowned designers who you could who you could make a film about. Um, their work stands up to it. So. What we had to balance was not just you know the the work, but where are they in their careers? Or we wanted people who had amassed a body of work that was substantive enough that you could say, yeah, this person has made lots of stuff that we can see and look at. Uh, but they're also still vibrant and still out there and still working. And the stuff that they're doing is still vital and, and real, and, and you can feel the energy and passion they still pour into it. So. To some degree, this was like you know looking for people who had built enough of a body of work that they could uh, they could definitely be a part of the conversation of you know we've reached the pantheon of design and you know they're there, but they still may not have even done their best work or the the thing they might end up being known for might not yet have been created. So they're still they're still active. They're still crafting their identity, um, and I think that was important to us that. If you look at it in sports, you know, we wanted to make, we didn't want to necessarily tell the, the Michael Jordan story of the greatest designer ever to live. We wanted to tell the, you know, the Kevin Durant story, like one of the, one of the great designers who's still building that legacy today. So that was kind of our, how we would distinguish it in, in sports vernacular anyway. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Was there any designers you couldn't get, or they just said no, or are you going to be hoping to add more episodes later on? Uh, I'm definitely hoping to add more episodes later on. I think uh, Scott, Morgan, John, and Justin and I are, are obsessed with this show. We love it. We loved making it. Um, we have, I think, a, uh, you know, <laughs> a fairly large list of people who, who we want to explore next. So hopefully it does well, and Netflix uh, is, is interested in doing more with us. But yeah, we, we have a lot of people who who were interested in talking to. We we definitely had people who we couldn't uh, secure as part of the first season, and some of that was to do with scheduling conflicts. Some of that to, was to do with you know 
very rational, like, who the hell are you guys and why would I ever do this kind of conversations. And uh, some of it was due to, you know, just kind of the basic uh, opportunity not intersecting, you know, from a storytelling standpoint. Like, this will be great, but the kind of thing you're looking to follow in my world won't be really relevant. You know, there's nothing really exciting that I'm allowed to let you in on until around this time, and it just didn't fit our production window. So there's a bunch of different reasons why it can't work out, and you definitely have to cast a, uh, you know, you can't just assume that you're going to get everybody that you want, and, uh, you know, you kind of have to look for a mix of people who are, who are out there and interested, and I think we, we, because of that, we've got a leg up if we are ever to do more episodes. We've certainly got a, a large group of people who we've built a lot of that groundwork with whose story, you know, we just weren't able to tell in the first season that we would love to still be able to get into. Well, the stories you did tell, though, I noticed there's a lot of, like, fun, uh, joy, a sense of play that runs through a lot of the episodes, and it's not reflective of all of like the the stress or the deadline or like the importance of the work, there's like a Nick Cannon line. So I don't know where it's the Nick Cannon part of the interview. There's a Nick Cannon line where he says, "My vocation is my vacation," and that seemed really reflective of like a lot of the designers that you talk to. They're having a good time. I think that's true, and I think these are people that are, you know, highly, highly capable. They're not scared by challenges, and they they confront them with this systematic approach and honestly it's it's been really liberating for me as a producer to to witness how they work and see the lessons i can take from that and, and apply to my own life uh because they they approach it with confidence and that doesn't mean that they all believe that everything is going to work out and they just kind of forge blindly through it they they just break the each of them breaks down their problem to the smallest piece to decide upon and they make a decision and that opens up a new set of problems and a new set of decisions and then they just kind of confront them one at a time and move through it. So it was really important to us that we captured their real process and a real sense of it and I think it would have been very easy and lazy of us to try to manufacture false stakes and you know make the ticking clock or the deadline a returning theme of you know existential dread that they're always confronting and uh, you know it just would have been lazy filmmaking because that's not who these people are these people are people who have multiple things going on simultaneously they manage them all incredibly well they create high level work and they almost thrive off of the intensity and the, and the challenges and it does feel like a hell of a lot of fun for them and being with them when they're doing these things is also a hell of a lot of fun I don't think I've ever had more fun out shooting things than I, than I did on this series. And I know that Morgan and Scott and the rest of our production team who traveled all over the, wor the world to tell these stories really just had a great time making it. Because you have the focus on, as you said, like the process and how these guys and girls are working, did you start rethinking how you do your creative process? Did it reshape your creative process a little bit? I, God, I hope so. I, I, I um, I try very much to, uh, to to take away lessons from what I learned from these people. And, and one of the main reasons, selfishly, that I want to keep doing more of them is 
to learn more from more great people. But yeah, I, I there's uh, I think it opened my eyes to new ways to look at the world. It opened my eyes to new ways to breaking down challenges in front of me. It opened my eyes to uh, different disciplines that had similar challenges that we face in, in production. And I think ultimately we approached the series as a, a giant design project in and of itself. And it made it, uh, it made it possible to get through it because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. And I think that's one thing that I, I learned through this process and through watching these, these folks is that fun and easy don't necessarily uh, match up all the time. There's a, there's this notion that, you know, fun has to be, fun has to be simple, fun has to be easy. But really, when things get hard and things get challenging, um, that can actually, actually be some of the most fun you can have because you're, the possibilities are all there in front of you and you have to just kind of make some, make some choices and go with it and you uh, live with the consequences of it. And that can be really exhilarating. Similar to that too, the, the idea of a blank page, you, you had a number of shots where people, where a designer would sit down with a blank page, and blank pages can be very inspiring too, even though some people find them daunting. Yeah, I think blank pages were, were one of the themes that, <laughs> that recurred through the series. You know, it's funny, the, the word abstract comes up quite a bit in the series, not prompted by us, just people saying it and meaning different things often when they say it. But yeah, the blank page is one of the most terrifying things for a lot of people, and I think for even for some of these designers, the blank page is hard. But when you, you know, I think Christoph did an amazing job in his film of uh, showing us how the blank page can be both intimidating and liberating. And, you know, you shouldn't be, uh, you can be terrified of the blank page, but you shouldn't let that paralyze you. You need to still, you, you need to still move through it. You need to still do the work. And, uh, you know, I've been, through this process, even reading old interviews from people like Ray Bradbury, the you know science fiction writer who says very similar things, like you know you can't be too precious about writing. You just have to take the blank page and put words on it and trust that it's going to be good. And when it's not good, you make it better. And uh, if you spend too much time just staring at the blankness, then no, nothing good's going to come of it. You gotta you gotta approach it one step at a time. I want to touch on just radical. Uh, because you guys have a, a unique position because you're not just a production company. You kind of do apps, uh, a number of different types of content. But also you have like a artist-in-residence uh, kind of thing, don't you? Yeah, we do. We, um, we definitely uh, try to be multidisciplinary. Oh, that was a fancy pants word I was looking for. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, we, try to, we try to stay on top of the latest technologies and understand how entertainment is being consumed across all these different platforms and it's something that uh, when John Kamen, our CEO and, and founder, started the company, he really leaned into and part of the reason that the company is even named Radical Media was just to, to underscore this notion for ourselves and for our partners that we wanted to just keep pushing ourselves. We, uh, we have a sign over our door when you walk in that says Radical Media never established and take it seriously we try to reinvent ourselves we try to we try to push to create in new forms and fashions and work with really talented people across 
all sorts of different disciplines. And I think that leads to the artist in residence program, which is, you know, a, a sort of tongue in cheek way of, of phrasing it. But we have a lot of friends of radical who we work with on a project or two, um, and they just stick around. And part of the environment we've built here is, is a family environment. Uh, you know, it's a relatively large production apparatus. Um, you know, we've got our headquarters here in New York City. We've got a nice big office out in, in Santa Monica and other offices around the world that all kind of feel the same. They all feel comfortable and, and fun and creative. And we find people who are like-minded we work with them on one thing, and then like eight years later, they're still here, and we're still working with them on other things. And we take a lot of pride in building those relationships, um, and it's not unlike what we have with, uh, with Scott Dadich and with Morgan Neville and, and lots of other filmmakers and producers um, from the documentary space with Joe Berlinger and Michael Bonfiglio and guys like that, and uh, all the way to the scripted space, um, working with producers in that world as well. So there's... There's just a great legacy here um, that really a lot of credit goes to, to John Kamen for building and making people who are creative feel like this is a place where they can come, they can express their ideas, they can find like-minded people to help make those ideas become realities. And uh, that's, that's what keeps us going every day. I love, I enjoy a lot of the uh, 30 for 30s. And I just want to know like what the process was like to get them like pitched or whatever, like how... What stories did you decide? I know there's some big ones like Bo Jackson obviously made sense because uh, of his his legacy and stuff like that. But other ones, I was just curious what kind of uh, what the picture process was to get them done. Yeah, well, I, I have pretty good relationships over at ESPN based on my time working there and uh, friends of mine who are still there that were there when I was there and others that I've made through the years, even though... Um, they might not have been there when I was there. So uh, part of it just comes down to really, uh, you know, <clears throat> ESPN is, uh, is three months younger than me. Uh, so I really grew up with ESPN and loved it from the time I was a little kid. And still one of the most, you know, prideful things in my life was having an email address that said at ESPN.com at the end of it. And, uh, you know, it always will be. Uh, so I take it very seriously. And I, I spent a lot of time watching the network and, uh, have a lot of love for the for the network and you know i think that for me um it really comes down to finding ideas that feel right for them and, and just you know there's a million great sports stories out there and they've told a lot of really good ones uh over the over the years so the so what i try to do is just have a pretty high uh a pretty high bar myself of what I would take into them because, uh, you know, I know they've, there's, there's very few ideas that you could pitch to that, to the powers that be over there, that they haven't already heard. Uh, so really it comes down to, to me, it's like, is it a big enough idea? They definitely know every great sports story that exists. Um, so you're not gonna, you're not gonna ever walk in there and be like, I have this amazing story that you've never heard. They've heard it. They know it. They know the story. So it's really about access, it's about approach, it's about how you're gonna get into a story that they've heard pitched to them 15 or 16 different ways, 
and tell it the right way, the only way that could really make it work. And that's, that's my barometer to, to bring something to them. I think they have their own very successful barometers on how they look at, at, at content from outsiders. And, you know, really they just, I think their biggest thing is just finding filmmakers with a vision and a, and a great story and a great subject. And if those things all align, they're, they're usually pretty interested in the idea. Cool. Uh, one last last question, but it is an important one. The uh, the Knicks obviously are are flaming, are going down in flames, and the Nets are not doing anything this year. So who's going to win the the ring this year? Do you think? In the NBA, who's yeah, who's going to win the championship? I, well, I think it's in all likelihood will come down. I, you know, from the second the finals ended last year, I've been waiting to see uh, them play again this year in the finals, and nothing I've seen. Thus far this season indicates it's going to be any different. So I, I think it'll, in all likelihood, be Cleveland and Golden State again this year. Hopefully everybody stays healthy. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how it goes down. I think LeBron is, uh, is a monster to handle. I think he's really difficult to deal with. And But KD. Position at KD and Golden State changes everything. So Golden State's really starting to click right now. If they stay healthy, I, I see them taking it taking it in six games over Cleveland. That's that's my that's my prediction. Definitely don't take it to the bank. Okay. Uh, I'll, s I'll send you an email after the, the finals in June, and then we'll see where we stand. Sounds good, Sammy. Thanks again so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy dude. Whatever. Congratulations on the series. It's fantastic. You guys did a great job. So high five to the whole team. I will definitely spread that around, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, talk to me and uh, thank you for uh, enjoying the show. Thank you. Have a good night. Yeah. Thanks, Sammy.